this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. This is huge, right? I mean, this is it's like inspires huge. all horror. It's kind of huge, and he's he's really the dawn of it all. He was post Poe, maybe at the same around the same time. He adored Poe, but it's different. He really is at the dawn of creating this world of sci-fi horror, and in a really kind of really horrible way, in a good way. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to first start at the end of it. There's this yacht, the Emma, that was manned by Johansson and colleagues, and they they were attacked by this yacht, the Alert, which was manned by, quote, a queer and evil-looking crew. The Emma boarded the Alert and beat them down. Then they manned the captured Alert, finding themselves on this island. Remember, this is the end. The island is actually on top of Cthulhu's temple, which is under the ocean. So what ended up happening in the course of this crash and sort of climbing onto this weird island that apparently defies structure and balance and geometry, as far as we know, what happens is they end up going through this weird little portal and going into it. And again, it's hard to describe because that's kind of the way Lovecraft is. I'm sure you noticed in the writing, the way he writes and, and describes everything is kind of weird. It's not just a question of function of the time of writing in the beginning of the 20th century, but it's kind of the way he is. It's kind of odd. For instance, in describing what ha- what they see when they go through this portal on this island that they crashed into, it says the very sun of heaven seemed distorted when viewed through the polarizing miasma welling out from the sea-soaked perversion and twisted menace and suspense lurked leeringly in those crazily elusive angles of carven rock where a second glance showed concavity after the first showed convexity. This is the kind of odd, wild, fascinating, confusing, distorted language that is throughout this story that not only reflects, I think, the time of writing, but also reflects him. And he was a weird dude. Sorry to all you Lovecraft fans, but he was wild and strange. And he another thing is he was poor all his life. He never ate. He ate very little. He was fascinated with New England and lived in New England. He lived in New York for a while. And in New York, this whole raging racism of his mushroomed because New York obviously was a place of a lot of immigrants at that time and still is. Anyway, back to the ending of the story where in the portal they discover, and I'm going to quote from the book, The odor rising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down there, the sound that he hears right when they've gone through this portal. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poisoned city of madness. And this is the creature Cthulhu, and he's emerged. And what Johansson and these people do after they run back to the yacht, the alert, is that they try to escape, but then they turn around and end up going through Cthulhu, or at him, it. And then it ends up spewing all of this green ooze all over the place, a cloud of stuff all over him. And then somehow the alert escapes again, and the creature descends, recreates itself. 
Anyway, the reason I summarize the ending first is that it's the only time in the story when humans confront Cthulhu in real time. So just so that we know the overall structure, the story is told by the great nephew, and this goes back to the beginning, whose grandfather, Professor Angel, an archaeologist, has died and left him his papers. And he discovered some very strange coincidences, as well as this frightening boss relief of a monster. Anyway, what the nephew finds is a weird cult rite going on in New Orleans, um, a weird fevered experience by this architect, Will Cox, who had dreams of this cyclopean temple, and those weird words, Cthulhu, Tagen, can't really mm -hmm. pronounce it, yeah. and other worldwide occurrences. Now, the date, this is another weird fact that I hear, is the date on which, remember Will Cox, the architect, had this weird fevered, febrile collapsed in these weird dreams and everything. Apparently the date on which he had that fever, which I think might have been March 23rd. And again, the dates are kind of important. But when he had this fever, apparently that day, Lovecraft was referencing occurrences that actually happened in the real world. And I tried to Google this and I haven't found it yet. But apparently on that particular date, some weird shit happened across the world. There was like an increase in suicides worldwide. There was an increase in some weird activity occult activity worldwide. So generally, when you look at the big picture, it's this nephew who's looking at his grand great uncle's papers of this weird occurrence of this creature, Cthulhu. And then he's reading through or going through these various different times when people were searching or reacting to this creature or effect or something that was occurring in the world. Now, there's one thing I wanted to say that really jumped out at me about Wilcox. As Quilcox would have said, the geometry of the place was all wrong. One could not be sure that the sea and the ground were horizontal. Hence, the relative position of everything else seemed phantasmally variable. Bryden, who was Johansson's colleague on the ship that crashed, pushed at the stone in several places. This is when they were on the island without result. Then Donovan, another colleague, felt over it delicately around the edge, pressing each point separately as he went. He climbed interminably along the grotesque stone molding. That is, one would call it climbing if the thing was not, after all, horizontal, and the men wondered how any door in the universe could be so vast. In this fantasy of prismatic distortion, it moved anomalously in a diagonal way so that all the rules of matter and perspective seemed upset. Again, I think that Lovecraft didn't have the language that he needed, or he was struggling with the language that he needed to describe this evil creature, this evil fact, this evil event in the world that has never really kind of been discussed before. And in a way, that's why he's considered the grandfather of all great horror or at dawn of this, because he didn't have the language yet. And that's why he's talking about geometry. I mean, geometry. He's trying to describe this evil event that affected the world and the humans in a way that he couldn't describe. Anyway, that's why I, I found that fascinating that he brings up the issue of geometry. That's my <sighs> onward. <laughs> Thank you. I think I need a drink. Yeah. <laughs>
I thought a lot about the geometry also, and I I went and I start and I started looking around because it seemed to me like this was basically fear. I don't know. Sometimes I think that it always comes back to fear for me. But I looked at what was going on scientifically at the time yeah. to see if this were just a reaction to science. I mean, there's so many parallels. I mean, I mean, Frankenstein was written a hundred years earlier than this, right? And but still, there are parallels. The I hope no one ever finds out about this kind of thing. Like, don't right. let on the secret. The voyage you know, monkey trials had just happened. 1925 and he published this in 1926 so right. you know science was take it was definitely taking over for god in many ways and i think yeah. that that has a lot to do with it there were also huge advances going on in quantum, quantum theory. theory there were really big advances taking place and all of this mystery there was mystery being you know opened up in certain areas but the mysteries of the universe were being solved so mankind and our the mysteries of god and stuff like that were being minimized and i think that's where the fear comes in we're not important in the universe anymore so it's less a horror about the supernatural than or that kind of the supernatural than it is about just like insignificance and you know if that's the case if it's talking to the unspeakable uh then there's a way that it's almost about science or what science is about too it's uh, grasping at like the unknown versus the known and being in horror of the deep unknown you know i mean the, these the old ones uh that this is you know yeah, about ones, you know they right. existed before humanity or before there was life on earth as we know it and they are still there i think that at the very beginning that he said a very interesting uh, a very interesting thing which was that there was a great survival yeah this is a quote from algernon blackwood of such great powers or beings there may be conceivably a survival a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. You know, and then to go, you know, forward a little bit more with, you know, this idea of like needing a language, I think it's interesting that the inspector in New Orleans is hitting upon this notion about the cult that they are worshiping tombs and it's the tombs of these old ones that are communicating via thought that their language is right just something that's transmitting and people are picking up on but uh yeah on page on my page 12 of this uh, they talk about the cult and the prisoners and said that it, it always existed and someday he Cthulhu would call when the stars were ready and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. It's important to know this isn't just a new cult, right? This isn't, you know, uh, this has always been the cult. It's There's always, always been, been there. They are operating in the farthest remotes um, and, you know, uncontacted tribes or unknown religions. There's not a lot of evidence for it. It's just something that's found out there as, you know, objects of worship. And in a way, whenever you have, you know, a cult worshiping something that's intangible, you cross that border again into that unknown, which seems to be what all this is about. Though it's interesting because it gives you all of that metaphysical horror, I suppose, in a manifest horror way. I mean, you actually do see this giant beast, you know, and they, they drive through it. There actually are relics, you know, that look like octopus heads on, you know, crab yeah, these, demons. Yeah, those idols. 
I think it's interesting that uh, the comment about science, and of course, science is like an ordering enterprise of making sense of the world. But the whole like horror of the the whole cult, the whole Cthulhu thing, was like this primal energy that predated this uh, order that we have in the world. I like compared it to where we talked about like Rousseau's man and Frankenstein, as far as being in a you know a noble beast and becoming savage through civilization. I feel like this took the opposite approach, where like the primal energy of mankind was this horrible, horrible, senseless thing, and that in artists uncovering the truth about you know the deep truth about humanity, is they're reaching in and seeing that like terrible primal energy again. In the in the story, they explicitly mention that like the working class didn't have these terrible dreams of Cthulhu. The scientists kind of did, but not really. But it was really the art artists that uh, were deeply affected by yeah. by these horrible nightmares. So in a way, maybe Lovecraft is making a comment as far as art uncovering the nature of mankind, and it's horrible. <laughs> I, I wanted to link this in here. This is still about New Orleans, but um, they say that them remained intact from making any moves they just lied awake in the dark and thinking for millions of years they knew all that was occurring in the universe for their mode of speech was transmitted thought even now they talked in their tombs when after infinities of chaos the first men came the great old ones spoke to the sensitive among them by molding their dreams for only thus could their language reach the fleshy minds of mammals and that idea that there's being something radiated or picked up on, I think, hints back to that hyper hypernatural or um, meta natural or uh, perceived natural. You know what what it's like. You know maybe a fear based uh, response to the world. But it, but it's easy. Or the radio. <laughs> the signals are there, right? You just have to tune in. Yeah. Well, and then you know, and then I think about this like with the radio, with what you were talking about the Lovecraft as well. That you know there was that War of the Worlds um, broadcast by Orson Welles. But I imagine that any radio broadcast w w would pull from that kind of era where you're recounting something and you slowly build to a reveal. And it's real the whole time. I mean, it's an inspector and documents and just like right. in Frankenstein and the Phantom of the Opera, you know, it's couched in found material. You know, this is the truth. This is the story of a voyage. And you're not supposed to have seen it. You know, if these documents get out, I think that's the last line. I hope no eyes see this. Right. Or he will suffer because of that. And also, he said, you know, how long will I make it? I like that. Um, I like that little trope, you know. How long will I make it? Well, yeah, now that, now that I'm actually, you know, writing this down, I've sealed my fate. There is a line here. Remember Castro? Mm. You yeah. know, then whispered Castro, whose first men formed the cult around small idols, which the great ones showed them. Idols brought in dim eras from dark stars. The cult would never die till the stars came right again. And the secret priests would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of earth. The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves. All the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Ah, uh, that was my that was my major go-to. I mean, because it you know there 
they're talking about also maintaining something. There's a way in which the people are tending these old ones, and it's not going to be but through them that they become manifest again. Whether or not you know it's a it's a cult that's you know going to be maintaining them, or they're going to be passing this figure around, or something a little bit more eerie, which I think is played out at the very end with Cthulhu. It looks like he was imprisoned. You know that that maybe the old ones also had or a temple of, of Cthulhu. It seems like he was put away, and by going out and searching for it, they had finally done it and came up with it by by sheer pursuit. They unleashed the beast. I mean, it might be that the old gods replaced them. There's a mention of Tartarus fairly close to the end. I don't know if this is what you actually read before, Laura. There is a sense of spectral whirling through liquid gulfs of infinity, of dizzying rides through reeling universes on a comet tail, and of hysterical plunges from the pit of the moon and from the moon back again to the pit, all leavened by a a cacinating chorus of the distorted, hilarious elder gods and the green, bat-winged, mocking imps of Tartarus. When I read that, I thought, oh, the gods had been, the very primal gods had been replaced by, by the gods of Tartarus, replaced by the Greeks, right. and then those replaced by Judeo-Christian or whatever, Hindu or whatever, and, well, Hindu before. But whatever you, you know, whichever way you wanted to take it, if we went back to our most primal, here we are, we've walked so far away from it, we actually have quantum physics, there are no gods. But when we kill ourselves with, <laughs> with the science, when we, when we drive ourselves completely mad from all of the proof that we are actually not special in the universe, then we will go back to hanging with Cthulhu. Does this remind anyone of the uh, biblical story of Moses and the Golden Calf? Mm. They had a specific passage, I can't quite find it, about uh, when they they found the worshippers and they were worshipping an eight-foot-tall statue with fire around and dancing around in a circle. And it just reminded me of, um, I mean, the story of Moses when he went to Mount Sinai to get the uh, Ten Commandments. He was gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and the Israelites got restless, so they got a bunch of gold together, made a golden calf, and started worshipping it. And of course, Moses comes back and is angry as and throws his tablets down and yells at people and starts, you know, getting people to kill false believers, but... I mean, it's analogous to, like, you just remove this law and order for just the slightest amount of time and humans naturally go back to this, you know, ferocious reveling that seems to be innate in them. Yeah, mob mentality happens all the time still, right? Yeah, I mean, it's paralleled in the story also with, like, the racism where, you know, (laughs) every single group that's a part of this Cthulhu worship is some sort of minority described in the worst kinds of ways. He really was a snob. It seemed even worse than that. I mean, he was like, like Cesare was pointing out, it wasn't like veiled racist asides. It was just like blatant, like flat out snarling attacks on these groups of people. It's just like evil and just loathsome and mischievous and monstrous. And yeah. Wow. But interestingly, <laughs> all of them to me, or at least the way that I, that I read it was, you know, they were always people who lived closer to the earth, like preliterate, you know, more natural. So I'm, I'm not saying that he wasn't racist. He pretty obviously was. But I, I was interested that, you know, it's, it's always this kind of down there in, in the mess of, of real life, of actual tactile experience. These, mm. these people who live closer to the earth are 
you know, they're dragging us all down. <laughs> my, well, you got, my, the, you got that from his father, just so you know. I heard the raging my, racism. My favorite slur that he writes is, uh, and whilst high up on West Greenland coast had encountered a singular tribe or cult of degenerate Eskimos whose religion, a curious yeah. form of devil worship, chills him in its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. Degenerate Eskimos. <laughs> <laughs> what does that Sounds like about? a party, man. <laughs> I also heard that you know, his this story was first published in that magazine or compilation called Weird Tales. And uh, I heard that Lovecraft hated the editor because the editor kept fixing his spelling and changing it from the British spelling to American spelling. And mm. it, it just infuriated Lovecraft. He'd hate so, me. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he had that stance that he was of a certain ilk, a certain mm -hmm. kind. But he was from Rhode Island. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, because the Victorian flourishes in this, uh, yeah. this story are, are truly, I mean, I mean, it, who else? He's basically going to say right here that, like, I wish I'd never seen this piece of paper. But the way he says it is, if heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total <laughs> effacing of the results of a mere chance, which fixed my eye on a certain piece of shelf paper. Really? I know. The definition of purple prose, right? Uh, yeah, well, again, and also, I mean, the time, you know, but also him. It's the way he was, you know, a highfalutin kind of guy that he was. It sounds older than it is. I mean, this is what I heard of Lovecraft. I thought he was in the early 1800s. But I mean, this is what Hemingway was writing. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It does sound older than it is. And I think, again, that's partly because of him, who he was. He was very affected. Yeah, I mean, I think of him, I think I think of someone who has, a, you know, a horror of dirt, you know, a horror mm, of yeah. mess. Compulsive hand washer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's this section here that I remember, I, and I highlighted it because it maybe kind of was a, a summary of the whole story, and I don't know why he put it here. But it says here, March 1st or February 28th, yeah, March 1st or February 28th, according to the international dateline, the earthquake and storm had come. From Dunedin, the alert had her noisome crew had darted eagerly forth as if imperiously summoned, and on the other side of the earth, poets and artists had begun to dream of a strange, dank, cyclopean city, whilst a young sculptor had molded in his sleep the form of the dreaded Cthulhu. March 23rd, which is the date I kept kind of focusing on, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that date, the dreams of sensitive men, sensitive men, assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit. Whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into, into delirium. And what of this storm of April 2nd, which may, is another date, the date on which all the dreams of the dank city ceased and Wilcox emerged unharmed from the bondage of a strange fever? What of all this and of those hints of old Castro about the sunken star-born old ones and their coming reign, their faithful cult and their mastery of dreams? To me, it struck me as a bit of a summary of everything that had happened. And I think he was focusing on everything happening at one time or within that time frame of the late March into early April. Again, apparently, I've told that that is an actual stuff was happening on those dates. It, now, when you think about it philosophically, if we look at the whole big picture of what he's saying here, he's looking at this, trying to, I think, define who we are 
who man is in the context of the evil that exists within this world and always has. Yeah, and it's star old. But also those dates are around the beginning of spring, they're around Easter, they're around April Fool's Day, which April was April is the, the coolest month. Right. But but they're all they're around mm-hmm. this time of regeneration. You know, if you look back not back stars old but certainly weather and the earth and and rights you know ancient humanity this is the time of it's all happening during the time of regeneration young man's fancy so i was i found that interesting i found it interesting that within the the series of dates was most likely going to be easter the traditional new year and springtime meanwhile that's why i brought up that quote april is the coolest month that's t.s Eliot. Yeah. Beginning of the wasteland. Right, because life is predicated on, on death. Say the first line in the story, which I know, I think, Cesaro, you mentioned you really liked. I think we all like that. The, yeah, the first paragraph, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that I think is the most famous. But there was this quote someone mentioned to me. Oh, here it is. That, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. Unpack it for us. Unpack it for you. <laughs> I, I, you know, and do it in rhyme, please. Okay, <laughs> that is not dead. Okay, that is not dead. Which can eat eternal lie? Okay, that's the Walking Dead. You know that show. Okay, that's the Walking. <laughs> that is Wait, not dead. Which can I mean, eternal lie? Jesus, everybody's favorite zombie. Yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. All right. That's why I said Easter, right? Right. That's yeah. not dead. Back, there's resurrection. Lie. Yeah. And with strange eons, even death may die. I mean. It's trying to control immortality, control immortality through evil. I'm, that's, I'm totally don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, gotta, I'm going for it. Yeah, I just got a hint of the uh, of that science fiction story that we wrote. Oh, that we wrote. That, that we read. We wrote. <laughs> yeah, we, we wrote, wrote it. I'm not even aware of this. The sci-fi story that we read. Last, uh, as in the last uh, question. Uh, yeah. 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 Yes, last the last question. Yeah. yeah. And, and like with that one, I, I see with that passage, I was I wanted to bring that little, I think it's a quote within the story. It's not a character. Right. I think something like uh, death, uh, whatever that can lie forever can die, basically. I'm paraphrasing. That, that, help, that help has a sweet ring to it. I mean, that's Cthulhu in his temple. You know, mm-hmm. he's not dead. He can just wait forever. He, you know what I mean? And he'll talk to you through the dreams of, you know, he'll just dream away aeons uh, until it's time. And yeah, except that he's, his dreams are throwing, those dreams are throwing people into, you know, fevers and they're going mad and they're, you know, people are dying under weird circumstances. But, you, but you, I mean, so what about nature? What about if, if this is just your primal nature calling you? What if, what if the fact is that, you know, that it turns out that it's just nature. There is no, you know, sure, maybe there's an earthquake, maybe things happen, whatever. No, I'm well, sure I mean, that if you took a look around the world every single day, you could find plenty of people who have gone mad. Yeah. So, but, but. And maybe, maybe this, the, go ahead. No, I was going to say, maybe the, the thing is, maybe the thing that is, that will drive you mad is your own nature, is that you are, you know. Human? Yeah, being of flesh. Of flesh, yeah. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. So if you're not human of flesh, then you can eternally lie. You know, and uh, again, I think it's important that, you know, that opening line, too, uh, that 
something like the Cthulhu horror is just consciousness manifest. It's mm-hmm. not really beyond that. I mean, it's the same way that those rituals are also powerful in and of themselves. They're, in a way, re-manifesting the consciousness if you buy into the metaphysic of old ones being buried in tombs. But even if you don't take that, then you can just have the expression of the ritual is a manifestation of consciousness for all those, all those people. I think it was interesting, your point, Cesare, about the golden calf, because, I mean, that's that's the, the New Orleans scene there with the inspector Legrasse, I think. Right. I mean, could you imagine anything more weird than going out into the deep swamps, seeing dozens of people in a They're fire. there now. And, yeah, yeah, I'm they really sure are. they are. I'm but sure then, if you then, go in there. <laughs> yeah, what I mean to say is that imagine. Are you talking about Duck Dynasty? And then, yeah, Duck <laughs> Dynasty. I'm sorry, Nathan. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, and then to have cops come in and bust it up. And murder people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the cops actually, a couple of cops fainted and almost died, right? Mm-hmm. Before yeah. they were revived they were, when they, they first went in there. But so this consciousness ahead. being taken over by reason. That's all I wanted to point out there, was that you have something like just a manifest experience that has value judgments from the writer, but I mean. Consciousness I taken over by reason. Isn't that Freud? Perhaps. Mm. I wouldn't know. Yeah, it sounds like. Yeah. That's very interesting. And actually, now that uh, you mentioned that, the beginning there, because I wanted to say, Daniel, because you had asked me which, because I highlighted that the most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Mm-hmm. And I happen to agree with that. But that's what the whole. That's why I said so. So Nietzsche, in my when I quoted this in the forum, because that what I'm reading now is actually called the uses and and disadvantages of history by Nietzsche, and his whole thing was it's such you know memory fucking destroys us. Mm. That's the, this memory is our prison, and that's what the, it's saying here in this first line. The most merciful thing in the world is that is our inability to correlate all these all its contents. I mean, so God. It is merciful. We can only be selectively conscious of certain types of like order, but we can't put it all together. It just doesn't make any sense. Like we know instinctively that murder is wrong, but we can't connect that with the fact that, for instance, we're murdering people across the globe. Well, yeah, and also, <laughs> and also connecting that to why. Yeah. You know, connecting it to oh, wait a minute. It is our nature as human beings to murder and mm-hmm. kill. It is our nature. So, uh, you know, being able, being able to connect to that in a really significant way and is, would be probably would destroy us. I mean, would physically you would implode. <laughs> really. And, I, and that's why I think when he's right when he says the most merciful thing in the world is our inability to correlate all those contents. And that's kind of what Nietzsche was saying, too, in this in this um, essay I'm reading. And uh, was that, um, you know, our, we and that's also what Freud was saying, too. I hate to bring psychology into this, but um, how can you but, not? Yeah. How can you not really? But the you know Nietzsche was saying you know we what we need to do is in order to survive in order for humanity to to survive uh, is to um, be able to 
manage our memory, to be able to manage the his, our history, to be able to manage the past, and because we're obsessed with it, and as a result, it's destroying us, suffocating us. So Nietzsche was saying, and he was obviously prior to Freud, but he was saying, uh, we've got to be able to dispel and, and, and remember what we need to remember in order to survive and forget what we need to forget. He was obviously, you know, a precursor to the whole Freud's thing, you know, the whole psychological stuff. But, you know, it, it's this, I mean, it really jumped out at me when I read that. Does he mean human history or personal history in that context? All of it. All of it. Yeah. He goes into a whole discussion about the German people and how they really fucked themselves over. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we can all come up with certain examples, obviously. But, yes, it's all of it. One of I you really, guys brought up uh, the wasteland, and that, that was really what he was trying to do in that poem, right? Mm-hmm. Reorder history and you know make some connections in this staggered kind of way between what you know was going on now and you know our our total history. Right. It's it's a real struggle, but this really not our discussion right now. <laughs> but it's a, it's a fascinating discussion how we manage our history and our past. I love that first paragraph and it really like reminds me of why I love fiction so much and why a lot of like principled philosophy really bothers me because I don't think I like, I like the partial truths and the things you can pull out of a work of fiction and um, I always find that humanity is just not strong enough to be under some very principled philosophy or principled worldview because I mean like it mentions it all falls apart if you just look wide enough. Well, yeah, we don't I, have. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nathan. Oh, I was just going to say, by example of characters in this story, I mean, who went mad? Right? Everybody. I mean, well, yeah, but specifically, you know, uh, the engineer and the sculptor, you know, the uh, the sensitive intellectuals. Well, and who didn't die? The people who weren't killed by Cthulhu were the people who were just doing their jobs. <laughs> were the cops? They didn't get killed. Right. Everybody else. The people, yeah. The, well, the people who were who were investigating it for, I don't know, maybe some you know form of scientific or some form of philosophical work, they all, you know, they were all killed. But the people who were just going about their day to day business. Oh, look, there are people in the swamp, you know, kidnapping and murdering <laughs> women and children. <laughs> Gotta go. Right. Yeah, it's that difference between like living in the world and trying to own the world, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, I think there's an interesting twist to that, which is in the third chapter, where I, I wanted to save this for my, one of my favorite last lines, but I'll just read this here. Um, the thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. What wonder that across the earth a great architect went mad and poor Wilcox raved with fever in that telepathic instant. The thing of the idols, the green sticky spawn of the stars, had awaked to claim his own. The stars were right again. And what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After vigintillions of years, great Cthulhu was loose again, 
and ravening for delight. Mm. <laughs> right, and it and so it didn't matter. It didn't matter that you know the people who actually were setting their sights on, uh, you know, who were trying to raise this thing, you know, let's just say the priests in their churches of Cthulhu, they had no effect on Cthulhu. It was just plain old happenstance. It was the nature of life in the world. A bunch of sailors smacked into an island. Right. Mm. So could you just leave Cthulhu there? I mean, it seems like... You have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like it was put there in this kind of, oh, uh, Escher prison, you know, to keep this thing at bay, and yet it is unearthed. What the hell is under the ocean anyway? Yeah. I well, mean, I'm asking you, like, today, now. Well, I saw this movie Pacific Rim, and oh. my theories. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's your Cthulhu. Okay, we can talk about the Mariana Trench if you want, but we're not going to Pacific Rim. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Sorry. Yeah, no, there I'm are kidding. Transformers under no, the at the bottom of the ocean. It's the it's the no, it's the mystery within, right? It's that that's the thing about oceans. That's so calming. Well, maybe <laughs> it's so horrifying. You guys kind of talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but like what? for my own personal benefit, like what is Cthulhu here? Like what is that, what is he the emblem of? Uh, not what he is physically, but what he represents. Right, yeah, I, I get the physical. Well, I mean, I just see disorder in this primal lust in humanity for a capacity for violence. I second that. Okay. I think he's evil. I think he's evil in, in the world and in humanity and that's what he is. It is. Mm. It used the term E. Uh, well, in the story, right? I mean, just it, it, it explicitly in the story, it's beyond good and evil. Yeah. You know that, that was that of, phrase. Yeah, I always think of evil as a human invention. So, yeah. I I wouldn't put Cthulhu as some just sort evil. of evil. Yeah, that's what I'm hanging up on because I'm I'm thinking about myth here, and I'm thinking about anthropocentrism and mm -hmm. what uh, you know is this exactly like whether it's a human invention and if he's something that is old as old as stars you know he proceeds and you know I guess will outlast humans maybe what uh, you know how do you attach meaning to that like what what signifies that if he's sort of outside the bounds of human experience and meaning well, and that's why it, I think language, he's limited by he, his language is limited because of that, I guess. But mm. well, or what happens when you take mystery out of life, right? What I mean, I think that that's what that. that's what science is. You know, that's the that's my feeling about the reaction to science. In the same the same way that I, I felt about um, Frankenstein, is that if you if if you can't have the mystery of alchemy anymore, you know, you, then you're going to have to create it somewhere else, right? If it's if the world can actually be explained, and if we're not special because of it, if we're not, you know, God's children, then what are we? And then what we are is very fearful, right? You just, mm. you know, you don't. If you don't have some sort of uh, everlasting soul, if there's no paradise, if there's no big, win, you know, no jackpot at the end of the rainbow. What are you really? 
And so I, I just kind of see this as, well, wait a minute, you're taking the, you know, you're taking the mystery out of, I'm, I, what, I'm a monkey? Mm. I'm the, you know, I'm the descendant of a monkey. I, you know, you, you've taken God, you've taken the mystery, and now I'm going to put it back in. <laughs> I'm going to create it, you know, I'm going to show well, you my primal being. I think that is a lot of the drive. That's man. great. I think that a lot of people really do look to, especially Lovecraft from a post-God perspective, they still want the awe, they want the demons, but they mm -hmm. don't have the heaven and the hell anymore to situate that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the, you know, it's, you know, cosmic. And so it, it you know, and it also, uh, the book goes against theosophists, which I imagine right. to mean God lovers or, uh, no, 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 that would be, um, that's right. No, the theosophists God were, promoters. Was, that was, uh, but the but the Theosophical Society wasn't that all about Madame Blatovsky? These were people who had seances and stuff like that. They were they were people who wanted mm. mystery in the world. I uh, looked it up on Wikipedia, and it, the literal translation is God's wisdom, and it's yeah trying to find like the origins of God, the universe, and humanity and its uh, interlinks. But it, if you look on Wikipedia, there must be a, a link to like Madame Blatovsky. Or sure, I know about this era. There was a there was a rich yeah. vein in the early nineteenth century of people trying to get back to mysticism and seances and um, communications with uh, the occult and unknown and crystal use and and that kind of thing was uh, taken hold of the American consciousness and a kind of swinging of the pendulum in another way. Yeah. So what happens when the occult is no longer occluded, right? What happens when the when you can see clearly because of science mm. what is you know how things came about in the world? That's why we always have and always will have poets. Cuz God died, we needed poets. To um, make the familiar strange again. Yeah. Right. Well, I still think that there's a function that's going on here. If, you know, Cthulhu is this kind of, let's just say it's, you know, uh, you know, it's an invention of this author and it's, it's something real in the world of these characters. You know, I still think that there's something that they're, that they're tapping into by holding a ritual, just it, in almost a similar way that, you know, Cthulhu is an advancement of the God idea. You know, it's that there really is this entity out there that can really, you know, do you harm or make things or communicate messages to you and can, you know, sway the world. And it's older than time. Um, but it didn't I, make our world, right? And it didn't make you. It's completely foreign. It is completely other. The the rocks aren't the same as the, you know, the, the, the idols are made from, from materials that aren't found on Earth. The slime, the cyclopean... Uh, geometry is completely other mm. so I, I found that really interesting yeah, it's one of like a reminds me of I don't want to hammer the biblical point too much but uh, like a, a reading I like of the Old Testament is not that there is you know God the one true God and everyone else is just wrong it's sort of like a battle between the gods and you know Jehovah is the one that wants to be the strongest but like there was Moloch and there was the golden calf and all these other gods were perceived as existent but uh, what the Old Testament was led to do is to promote Jehovah as the one true God, the you know the God of rules, of law and order. But you know Cthulhu is is another God out there, another God that uh, just has a different value set, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, 
And he better be a good God if I can't eat pork. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> better be giving me something good. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, I like that, Cesare. I like that reading. Where does Thor come in? <laughs> <laughs> well, right, yeah, because he's a God that isn't necessarily, you know, he's not going to put us at the center of the universe. Yeah. You know? It's just this massive force out there that's, you know, pervading life that we have to deal with, but yet it's not going to take us into like, you know, this ultimate consideration. We're just sort of in the, you know, swaying in its wake, you know? Well, yeah. that's where I kind of get that going back to that consciousness manifest thing. I mean, if Cthulhu is a manifestation of consciousness or phenomenality, then everybody who is part of the ritual is tapping into that by virtue of their conscious connection to it. Whether whatever their feelings, if they're feeling chaotic in the orgy, you know, like that's tapping into it. So in a way, these are just, you know, avatars for the human experience. And the Cthulhu avatar would be something horrible and um, uh, escaping meaning. You know, you can't look at it. Is it a, is it a is it a demon? Is it a human? Is it a crab? Is it a, you know, like it, that's, that's the, that's the point of this, you know, kind of turn. And, mm. and I wonder if there's not a lot more, you know, more richly laid in there. I was just looking at some, uh, some biblical, um, uh, research, uh, just recently you, you Wikipedia diving basically, but found out, uh, things like the beasts and the, the images of the beasts were actually metaphors for the nations and kingdoms and powers of the world at the time, representing the known nations and et cetera. And so it wasn't really like a lion with griffin wings. It was more like, you know, the Sahara and I don't know, mountains, uh, you know, kingdoms. It was meant to, it was meant to depict something rather than create this new supernatural entity that had a life on its own alongside everything else. It wasn't about the big beast. It was about what's going on, with your experience of the beast. Hmm. Spent a lot of time in church going over those metaphors. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and it's done wonders for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> so Nathan, you're saying like the parts that he's composed of are metaphorical in that way? Like they, they tell- It could be, it's beyond my reach now to consider what the message would be that that's a codec for what Cthulhu could be parsed out to represent as a, you know, some message, you know, it could be that, you know, he's pulling from different kinds of religions, each one of those uh, composites. I, I don't really know. I, I think that what's, what's strongest to me is that it's preternatural. If I'm using that word, right. It's, um, uh, it's, uh, what's the word I love so much atavistic, um, or, um, it's really too bad we don't have Freud here to ask him what he thinks of a face full of tentacles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what could that be? <laughs> yeah. I think to note as well that, I mean, remember, like, the people taking part in the rituals are these, I mean, he twists it in his racist way, but what he views as these primitive people and that his job, uh, it seems like the white man's burden here is to save civilization from this influence, right? that he sees it as a dangerous thing that but the thing that he's that they're um saving them from is is anybody finding out 
right? Anybody actually speaking the name of, well. Or perhaps finding it out first and getting uh, ahead of the curve, so to speak, and yeah. put you know, forward to science something that's been unknown. You know, in this email that I got from Seth, actually, um, I had <clears throat> sent in this email and said, oh, you know, has Nathan talked to you, blah, 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 you know, and he said, I said, I, and I said, because we're going to be talking about um, Cthulhu, the Call of Cthulhu this Sunday by Tree Lovecraft, and then um, Seth wrote back and said, um, yeah, yeah, I spoke with Nathan, he's going to talk to you, blah, 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 and then he said, um, and yes, good luck with he who cannot be named. And that actually is a quote from a different story, as I've heard, um, of Lovecraft's, I think, uh, Mountains of Madness or something else. Um, but um, I don't know if the name Cthulhu can actually be stated. I'm not sure. But it goes to that idea of, you know, these people who would, you know, who looked at him or saw him went mad in their dreams or in reality, like Johansson, the the semen who ended up dying. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that referred to Cthulhu specifically, but oh, I think okay, he was okay. on that track, Lovecraft. So I, I think I'm catching up now. So the name is something that, you know, you really can't say, and the no, you is something can't. you really can't look at, and he's coming out of this city that just can't even be figured out. Right. So everything is just beyond the grasp of your mental yeah. faculties. Exactly. And, and hence the discussion of the geometry in the story that is just not something that you or I or any of us humans with our limited brain capacities can understand or comprehend. It's not within our framework that we have. Yeah, and that's where the metaphor, I think, gets its power. It's precisely by being unreasonable. But it's also yeah. how, I mean, how, like, the truth of something is watered down when we put it into words or ideas or speak it. Mm. I was going to read this thing in Frankenstein last week, but I couldn't find it. It was a... There's an essay by Paul Cantor on it, and he says, uh, when composition begins, inspiration is already on the decline, and the most glorious poetry that has ever been communicated to the world is probably a feeble shadow of the original conceptions of the world. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that. And it just reminds me of, like, I mean, when we think about meditation and chanting and the weird words that we get in the story, Cthulhu, it's it kind of points to this you know, inner truth that gets bastardized when we try to put, you know, uh, words to our thoughts. Yeah, it's a filter. It, yeah. it mediates that. And, and then you end up with this placeholder for the experience. But in the exchange of all those, you know, semiotic placeholders, you forget that they're stand-ins. You start treating the words and the signs and symbols as the thing itself. Right. Yeah. Always a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but hard not to do, correct? It's impossible not to do. Yeah. Well, and that's all we have. Hmm. I don't that's think it is all we have. I think it's really? all we use. <laughs> well, it's a great source of our power anyway, which we're kind of in love yeah. with. Mm -hmm. Well, true. I mean, that's what we use. The, the scientists that are out there trying to categorize and map out and sort of, you know, explain 
Cthulhu and, you know, turn that into, you know, one more piece of human knowledge in the catalog, um, they're going to translate, you know, they're the translators who are going to put that into the system of placeholders so it can be moved around. It can be manipulated and understood. And then, you know, I mean, that's, that's where we get, you know, all of our power over manipulating nature is, is in that way of map making, isn't it? Yeah. In the naming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ordering, defining. Yeah. It's like, it didn't start that way. It's interesting, you know, the artisans and the craftsmen, you know, there was, uh, I guess it's related to working memory in some ways, you know, there was only so far you could go with your hands and you can get pretty complicated and then you gotta have some blueprints <laughs> for a computer or something like that. To, once your working memory hits its limits, you need to start working with symbols that have their own sort of memory. Yeah, you need to be able to piggyback, pile up, compress. Yeah. And my working memory is a short bus. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, it, yeah. Thank God for Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to just add that, I mean, we've probably seen imagery of this in a lot of science fiction. I mean, off the top of my head, I think about a lot of the stuff that um, Guillermo, del, well, here we go. Guillermo del Toro does yeah, uh, with a lot Toro. of his figures. Uh, the Independence Day creatures, I mean, those, right. uh, those tentacle face things, Alien. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I think a lot of this comes from the it's un it's an unknown kind of a horror. It has just enough of a figure to be relatively threatening. I mean, it's bigger than you usually, or it you know has uh, power, um, but you you have a hard time looking at it, know it, know what you're taking in. And I think that that's I don't know one of the strengths of this. It's not just you know uh, horror on from a character level, like worried about what's going to happen to that character, but it's just a, a pervasive from everywhere um, kind of a haunt. Even even um, the book Leaves of Grass, it's mm. really, I mean, uh, in that horror story, the measurements inside the house are longer than the measurement outside the house. So the house is bigger on the inside than the outside. And it's mm. just... It's like the TARDIS? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like the TARDIS. Yeah, I think that's Dr. Dr. Yeah. So I mean, there's just the, this has been the 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 basic notions of and like the 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 good guts of this story I think have been uh, pulled out uh, time and time again uh, to inspire art, and I just think that's worth mentioning. Whereas something like Frankenstein, you get the reverse of that. It's almost no detail, and you and it's oddly descriptive how much tentacle, gooey, pulpy imagery you get in uh, Lovecraft stuff. Um, so. Well, um, it's also interesting that he was committed to the short story. Did I think he only wrote one novel, and he wrote hundreds, hundred short stories. He was primarily a short story writer, and I, it's fascinating. And also, I I've learned that um, <clears throat> had he not ever written anything after the Call of Cthulhu he would still have been as famous because of this story. Hmm. And he wrote some really major things after this, obviously. 
I mean, also there's movies. I've actually seen the Call of Cthulhu movie made by the guys who um, run the H.P. Lovecraft uh, uh, Historical Society. There's and a video it, game too. <laughs> yeah, there's a video game too, and um, and it's black and white, and it doesn't. Uh, there's no sound, and the reason is is because I've been told that the guys do do these movies of uh, Lovecraft's work, but they utilize the technology that would have been available at that time. So they did a, a movie of Call of Cthulhu, and so there was no audio because I guess there was no audio available for a black and white movie. <laughs> That's what I was told. And I'm that, just thinking about, you know, uh, war reenactors, you know, civil war reenactors and that, that know, bone buttons and stuff like that. Yeah. People can really get into this stuff. Yeah, man. I know. It's amazing. And, and also, absolutely. And he, um, and then, and then they made a movie about the mountains of madness. And apparently that is, does have, um, sound, but I don't know if it's in color. So if, if, if yeah, like you, you're saying about these war reenactors, it's like that. They, they they reflect what they do reflects what they believe was happening at that time. Nice. Weird, weird, weird. Um, anybody want to throw out their favorite lines? Uh, let me double check. Yeah, I mean, I unless there's something mine. huge that we haven't. Uh, <laughs> did you burn yours already? Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I actually mine was what Laura already mentioned at the beginning of the first paragraph. So. Uh, well, no one said this one yet. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to, peculiar to beasts. And it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. Mm. Mm. That's funny. I was going to ask if Laura could pronounce some of those chants. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not had enough to drink yet. <laughs> I was going to say you I haven't mean, been. I need. I need. I need practicing. I, no, <laughs> absolutely not. And also, not only not only can the name Cthulhu not be properly pronounced by any human being, right? But I, I think I did say at some point that I was told that um, if you're, you know, above the age of thirty or whatever, you can't understand the story at all. Um, but I did have a line, um, which was part of this first paragraph, I think. Um, we live in a placid... Oh, yeah. I think I really like that one. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there yeah, you have the... Fall of Eden, correct? Right. Once again. Absolutely. Once again, we fucked knowledge, up. Well, knowledge is, you know, if you actually want to bring yourself, if you ha if you go after knowledge, then you're going to bring yourself too close to the gods, and that's the greatest sin. That is. is. Trying it's to be a god. I have one. I think most of my lines were already said, but uh, I like this one. Uh, the aperture was black with a darkness almost material that tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from its eon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. Ooh, that was a good one. <laughs> I've got one. This is from the end here. 
Cthulhu still lives too, I suppose, in that chasm of stone which has shielded him since the sun was young. He must have been trapped by the sinking whilst within his black abyss, or else the world would by now be screaming with fright and frenzy. Who knows the end? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Loathsomeness waits and dreams in the deep, and decay spreads over the tottering cities of men. A time will come, but I must not and cannot think. Nice. I, I wanted to say that that line, what has risen, what is it? What has risen once will rise again. What is it, uh, Nathan? What has risen may sink, and what has sunk may rise. Yeah, I like that. I want to put, that's my second favorite line. Or <laughs> <laughs> it's close to my first. It's, I like that one. Are we going to find, is that going to be at the bottom of your emails now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>